Chapter Fourteen of the Master Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Master Mystery by John W. Gray and Arthur B. Reeve. Chapter Fourteen. Eva flattened herself against the door at her back. She could feel and hear Locke pounding on the other side. She thought that she would die of sheer terror. The automaton raised his mighty fist, and Eva instinctively ducked under the monster's arm. There was an inner room. Could she reach it in time? Would the door be unlocked? At most she could only try. The emissary tried to catch her, but she proved too quick for him. She reached the door. It opened, and she flew into the room, slamming and bolting it behind her. Now she could hear the thunderous blows of the automaton raining against the door. One huge fist of the monster crashed through the panel. Eva crouched down in a far corner and closed her eyes. At that instant the time bomb exploded and the house was rocked to its foundations. Everything was demolished. One entire side of the house was blown out. The door leading to the workshop, which, a moment before, Locke had been vainly striving to open, crashed full upon him and felled him, half-stunned, to the floor. The force of the explosion had dazed Eva. As for the automaton and the emissary, they had both been blown through a gaping aperture in the wall to land in the garden beneath. Only Zita, in the lower hallway, was totally untouched by the catastrophe. Locke, dazed, crawled from under the door and made his way into the demolished room in search of Eva, a cold fear gripping his heart. How could any living thing have lived after such an occurrence? But in another instant he saw her as she half swooned and staggered into the room. "'Quentin!' she gasped. He caught her in his arms, but the next moment she remembered what she had witnessed in the hallway below, and she drew herself away from him. "'Go to the girl you really love,' she scorned. "'The girl I really love?' repeated Locke. Then there ran through his mind what had happened as though it had been ages ago. He protested and tried to explain but protestations and explanations only made matters worse, as usual. Had she not with her own eyes seen Locke in Zita's arms? "'Eva,' he persisted manlike, "'I swear that she was only trying to save my life. I cannot help it if she—' Locke saw that his defense was only making an innocent matter worse, and checked himself. His mind recalled that someone had once said that a jealous woman believes a man guilty until he proves himself innocent. When he has proved himself innocent, she merely still suspects. Ava's manner was very constrained. At that moment a policeman, followed by Zita, entered, and Zita, running up to Locke, cried anxiously, "'You're not hurt, are you?' Locke answered in an annoyed negative. The policeman now questioned them very closely and examined the dead inventor's body. 
Then he entered their names and addresses in his notebook. Next, the officer led the entire group down to the garden. There, the horribly injured emissary was trying miserably to crawl away. The automaton had totally disappeared. Eva immediately ordered that the injured man be taken to Brent Rock in her car. Then she turned sharply to Zita. "'How did you come to be here?' she demanded. Zita was startled and confused. It lasted only a minute. Then, her mind made up, she replied defiantly, "'I came here to discover the secret of my birth. I have been told that I am Mr. Brent's daughter.' Eva was stricken dumb with astonishment at this startling claim, but Locke laughed outright. "'What nonsense!' he scoffed. "'Eva, don't listen to it.' Zita glared at him, and with a haughty nod to Eva, swept out of the garden. Eva was still frightfully indignant with Locke, and insisted on going home alone. However, they arrived at Brent Rock at about the same time. The emissary had been placed on a lounge in the library, and a doctor was called. The case was quite hopeless, and they merely hoped to obtain a confession before he passed away. When Eva arrived, she went directly to her father's room, but as he was receiving every attention from a trained nurse, and she could do nothing further to aid him, she returned to the library. Locke, too, after changing his clothes, still wet from the water tank on the top of the apartment, also went to the library. At his entrance the doctor glanced at him in a manner to indicate that there was no hope of saving the man's life. Locke went over to examine him. He was struck by the sly rascality of the professional criminal, but he thought little of it at the time. He tried to question the emissary but except for a labored breathing could extract no response. There were voices in the hallway. For a moment the dying man showed some signs of returning consciousness. A crafty look came over his face. What was he contemplating? The door opened and Balcom and his son Paul entered. Balcom walked jauntily, but with a suavity of manner that was always his. Paul looked at his best, except for the fact that he carried his left arm in a silken sling. Balcom greeted them all, and at his voice the dying man actually showed a sort of agitation. A strong shudder seemed to pass through his body. Then, like a spring suddenly uncoiled, he sat up. He was fully conscious now and strove to rise to his feet. It was a tremendous effort but he succeeded, and stood confronting Balcom, while the ominous light of hatred that gleamed from his eyes as they encountered those of Balcom made even that well-poised man recoil and shudder. With the muscles of his face working convulsively, the dying thug tried to speak. All those standing in the library realized that it was to accuse, to denounce. However, the effort proved too great, and with a groan that was ghastly, the man fell backward on the couch, dead. Murdering brute that he had been, 
still to Eva and Locke he now represented nothing but a stricken human being, with a human soul, blackened and warped. But Balcom and Paul seemed to show unmistakable signs of joy and relief. It was so evident, Locke thought, that he turned to them. "'Your coming seemed to have an unfortunate effect,' he hinted. "'The man seemed to know, one of you at least.' "'Nothing of the kind,' retorted Balcom, nettled. Locke turned to Paul and regarded his injured arm questioningly. Paul, however, never lost his accustomed aplomb. "'I was hurt in an automobile accident.' he explained, though with what seemed to be a trifle of nervousness. Locke turned to the doctor. He was rubbing his hands and smiling with great unction, an action very unbecoming, to say the least, in a medical man who had just lost a patient. Taken all in all, Locke felt he could now sense the web of conspiracy tightening around him. The cards were still in the hands of his enemies. He determined to incur any risk, to leave no stone unturned in order to bring the criminal to justice, whoever he might be. One thing encouraged him. The event seemed to have mollified Eva. He made an almost imperceptible signal to Eva, who left the room to dress for the street. Meanwhile, Locke left the library and went to a private telephone that connected the garage to the house. He ordered the chauffeur to have a fast runabout ready for instant call. Then, at the other telephone, he notified the coroner's office of the death of the emissary. By this time, Balcom, Paul, and the doctor came out of the library, the doctor in high good humor, for had he not received a huge fee? He left in his car. Balcom and Paul, however, were slower in going and paced the hallway in earnest conversation. Once they came to a dead halt close to the stairway leading down to the graveyard of genius. They listened intently. Evidently they came to a decision on something, for they left the house very hurriedly. Immediately Locke called for the runabout. Eva came running downstairs, and in a moment they took up the trail of the Balcom car. It seemed as if they traveled for miles, and Locke was commencing to think that it was merely a wild goose chase, when Balcom's car came to a halt in one of the lower quarters of the city before a house that was apparently tenantless. To avoid discovery, Locke backed his car around a corner, got out, and watched their movements from a safe distance. He saw Balcom Sr. alight, but Paul did not leave the car. Locke was in some quandary what to do. To attempt to enter the house without Paul seeing him and raising the alarm would, he realized, be impossible. Therefore he waited for nearly a half an hour before his patience was rewarded by seeing Balcom come out of the house, jump into the car, and drive off hurriedly with Paul. Locke walked to the house and looked closely over the exterior. It was little different from others in the same street. Then he walked thoughtfully back to Eva, and they argued pro and con about the advisability of attempting to enter. 
Locke insisted on entering alone, but Eva would not hear of it. Therefore it was decided that they would go in together. When Balcom had alighted from his car half an hour before, he had merely stood for a moment in front of the door of the house when, mysteriously, the door had opened. There was no one in sight, but he was so familiar with the house that it might have been his own. He descended a flight of stairs and stood before another door, where the same door-opening process was repeated. Balcom entered a darkened room and for a moment seemed quite alone. Then, from out of the shadows, with a little half-run, half-lope, a strange figure of man came toward him. He was in reality large of frame, but stooped and bent with age. An old frock-coat was wrapped about him. But the most remarkable things about the man were a pair of weirdly fascinating eyes, with a mad glint in them, and an enormous full beard, snow-white, that fell almost to the waist. At times the man talked rationally, in fact with the forcefulness of a great savant. Then, abruptly, he would leave off and the rest of his conversation was that of a babbling child. He was seldom at rest, scampering here and there, not unlike a bird-dog on a fresh scent, seeking, always seeking, what? Balcom grasped his arm in order to arrest his attention. "'Dr. Q,' he addressed him, "'you can have the revenge you have sought so long. Have you prepared everything?' The old man chuckled and wagged his head in senile fashion. Balcom grabbed both his shoulders so that the old man was facing him and shook him slightly. "'Your enemies are here,' he emphasized. Have you prepared for their reception?" And then the haze beclouding the old man's brain seemed to pass away, and his next moments were lucid. "'Ah, it's you, Balcom. You were just saying—' Balcom explained that Locke and Eva had tracked him, and on his departure would undoubtedly enter to investigate the place. Dr. Q, for such was his odd name, understood now, and an evil grimace distorted his wrinkled face. "'Let them come,' he growled. "'I am prepared. Why, I have even improved certain features of the chair of death.' He led Balcom into an inner room where many electric bulbs were dimly glowing. At their entrance, two brutal-looking men straightened up from their task and saluted Balcom with great deference. Then they resumed their tasks as electricians. "'Want to see your work, sir?' one of the pair asked. Stepping around a partition that separated the knife-switch from the room in which stood the electric chair, Balcom watched. The chair was of practically the same construction as the chairs used in prisons for the supreme penalty, with electrodes to connect at the head, arms, and legs of the man to be electrocuted. "'Stand back, sir,' called one of the men as he shot the switch home. Instantly a snapping sound was heard as the current surged through and the crackling sound, such as the now-familiar wireless makes as the long sparks leap from pole to pole. 
It was force. A satisfied look came into Balcom's eyes, and he warmly congratulated the mad inventor who followed him to the door and watched him as he mounted the stairs to depart with his son. Soon after the departure, Dr. Q went to a strange-looking instrument that seemed to have many of the characteristics of the periscope. He pulled a lever, a panel opened, and immediately the space directly in front of his street door was revealed to him. He stood there, watching intently, much as a spider watches for a fly. Soon Locke and Eva showed in the panel above. He next pressed a button and saw the two enter. Then he went to a huge divan on the other side of the room and whipped off a covering that was concealing some gigantic thing beneath. It was the automaton, prostrate, at full length, without motion. At least it seemed so. The madman glanced around and then glided into an inner room from the larger one. He was just in time, for a moment later Locke and Eva entered. They, too, glanced around fearfully. They saw the dread form of the automaton, and although it did not move, Locke would have admitted he was ready to beat a retreat. It was uncanny, weird. In the dim light the monster seemed to assume gigantic proportions but he lay so still that their jangling nerves became quieted. They even approached him, Locke with automatic in hand in case the iron terror were shamming. But there was no sign of life, or whatever it was that animated this thing. Locke, handing his gun to Eva, determined to investigate further. He went to the inner door and listened, but he could hear no sound. He turned the knob and entered. He was amazed at what he saw. But as there was apparently no living thing about, he took courage and entered farther. He took note of the switches, saw the deadly chair, and was about to test the apparatus to see if it could be possible that a practical electric chair existed in the heart of a peaceful city, when he heard Eva shriek in heart-rending terror. He rushed madly back to where he had left her. But as he passed through the door, someone dealt him a blow on the head, and as though pole-axed, he dropped to the floor. After Locke had left her to go into the inner room, Eva's fears revived and she wished to follow him. But she was ashamed to have him think her a coward. She forced herself to remain rooted to the spot. Her eyes had followed Locke through the doorway, and her ears were strained to hear the faintest sound from the other room. In her anxiety about Locke's safety, she even forgot the automaton, and in turning the better to watch the doorway, she drew nearer to the divan upon which the monster lay. It was this action that had brought her into peril. Slowly one of the monster's arms commenced to move and before Eva could spring away she was enfolded in his deadly embrace. It was that that made her shriek madly, wildly, in utter terror. Then she saw Locke running through the door to her, saw him struck from behind, and she fainted. 
the automaton, evidently thinking Eva dead, let her limp body slip to the floor. For a moment it towered over her, as though contemplating whether to trample on her or not. At this juncture an emissary distracted its attention, and the terror left her lying there without further injury. The automaton now assumed command of Locke's electrocution. Under its direction, the emissaries picked up Locke's body and placed it in the electric chair. They slit his trousers so that the deadly electrodes might form a better contact with his flesh. His sleeves were rolled back for the same reason. Next, the headpiece was firmly adjusted. Now all the straps were tightly clinched. The automaton waved his arm. A man stepped to the switch. End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline